Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's FS Club webinar. And despite some of our technical glitches, I'm really delighted to be welcoming Andrew Smithers. And I would like to thank all of you. Everybody stayed online bar one person. I can't believe that. Uh, very, very generous of, of all of you. Andrew, you'll know over many years, has an extremely distinguished career in analyzing uh, financial markets around the world. But today he's going to be talking about his most recent book, which came out in March, The Economics of the Stock Market. Now, you'll know me. I'm Michael Minelli. I'm one of the directors of Zien. And it really is a privilege to be able to introduce so many of these fantastic webinars. And I can only do so thanks to the tolerance, and dare I say, the uh, tolerance and generosity of our various sponsors around the world who are interested in all subjects to do with technology, economics, and finance. And today we're certainly going to be covering a lot of ground there. Now, the format will be familiar to many of you. My job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible and let you hear from our expert, Andrew. Uh, Andrew has reserved 20 minutes for a Q&A, and this is the great opportunity on these sessions to interact and ask questions, which I'll feed into a conversation with Andrew as we proceed. Uh, may I suggest uh, really three things? Uh, one, don't worry. We are going to, in fact, uh, have this uh, recording up in approximately two working days, so sometime about midday on Wednesday, I would hope. Uh, secondly, Andrew's slides will be available. Uh, but thirdly, and most importantly, Type your questions, comments, observations into the chat room. Uh, Andrew will be receiving all of those with your email attached. And if he wants to get back to you or you want to get back to him in some way, uh, connection will have been established. Now, we thought we'd start today with a quick poll. And here it is. Uh, the Financial Times writes, Liz Trust should head economic orthodoxy, not ignore it. Now, do you agree or do you disagree? Uh, and we're just launching that poll here now. Now, Andrew, one of the great things about our audience is they tend to be fairly opinionated. So uh, already 30% uh, already voted. And I'm just going to leave that poll open for a minute longer so we can get kind of the temperature of the audience. Is that is that a, a rude thing to say? Uh, well over half voted. Uh, just holding that on for a moment more. I'm going to close that poll now and we're going to see what uh, folks think. Well, it's a fairly divided audience for a change. Uh, Yes, Liz Truss should head economic orthodoxy uh, wins, but not by very much, 54 to 46%. So with no more ado, if I may, Andrew, uh, we're going to move on to your slide deck, and the floor is very much yours. Thank you. Well, many thanks, Michael, for that introduction. Apologies from me for I'm sure that I was probably partly responsible for the holdup, as I am not terribly technically competent. Okay, let's move to slide two. This sets out the key conclusions of the economics of the stock market, my book. And these are that the consensus model is invalid and that the alternative stock market method is robust when tested against the data. The book also explains, excuse me a minute, got to change my glasses. Uh, the book also explains how current consensus theory leads to financial crises, another of which I fear we are about to experience. These are unnecessary, and the stock market model explains how to avoid them. Now, Samuel Butler suggested 
that a sign should be put up in churches which read, important if true. I claim the same for my views. Their importance, if true, is twofold. If accepted, they will improve our understanding, which is the aim of all science, and will, in addition, allow us to avoid, in future, a regular repetition of damaging financial crises. Slide three, if you could move to that, please. Slide three is about the difference between science and non-science, as famously set out by Karl Popper. Valid theories can be falsified by testing against data. But the CM was developed before these data became available and could not then be tested. It fell therefore the wrong side of Popper's demarcation. Now, however, we have data which we can use to test the consensus model and that data shows that the model is falsified by those data. Okay. Slide four deals with the aim of policy, which is stability, i.e. growth with low and stable levels of inflation and unemployment. As the slide shows, the assumption of the consumer con consensus model leads to conclusions that stability is assumed, is assured and assumed if demand matches supply at full employment. Or to put it in a neo-Keynesian terms, where net X anti-savings equals zero. Sadly, this assumption and its conclusions are very, very wrong. Slide five shows that at least two equilibria are needed for stability. And that the consensus model is wrong to conclude otherwise. It also shows that this error leads to the financial crises which are, have been and will be, if we don't change consensus model, far too frequent and occurrent for the economy. Now, slide six draws attention to the fact that the consensus model assumes that we cannot have financial crisis if we have the stability of a balance in demand and supply. It assumes this because equities cannot become overvalued unless there is too much demand. It assumes that equity returns vary with short-term real interest rates. These conclusions follow from its assumptions, which are the ones I pointed out. Shares can't be overvalued unless interest rates are too low. And then, of course, demand is excessive. Basically, it assumes the validity of the efficient market hypothesis. Now, James Mitchell, has shown that while equity returns vary with short-term interest rates, the relationship is only a short-term one. And that, in James's work here, is absolutely crucial for underlining one of the key assumptions and conclusions of the consensus model. 
If we go to slide seven, I'm going to talk about this important element, which is Q. Q is the ratio of stock market value and net worth. Because it's mean reverting and net worth is relatively stable, the economy is unstable when Q ratios are high. And the higher they are, the more unstable it becomes. Slide eight deals with this. As James Mitchell has shown that declines in short-term interest rates have the temporary effect of pushing up share prices, they rise much more than net worth. So the Q ratio rises, but this effect is only temporary. If Q is high, it will tend to fall through declines in share prices, not through any change in net worth. If interest rates rise, the speed of this decline is amplified. The aim of monetary policy is to stabilize inflation and unemployment, but low interest rates designed to do this by stabilizing demand, push up Q, and can thus also be destabilizing. Now the impact of this destabilization is boosted if we have, the un as unfortunately we've had recently, QE boosting long-dated bond prices. Slide nine classical i.e. pre-Keynesian theory, held that economic equilibrium could be maintained by central banks varying short-term interest rates. Keynes showed that fiscal policy might also be needed to achieve an ex-ante saving investment balance and called this a liquidity trap. But even without a liquidity trap, when fiscal plus monetary policy has balanced demand, the economy is still unstable if Q is too high. Slide nine emphasizes a major failure of consensus theory, which is failure to recognize that economic stability also requires that Q does not fear too much from one. In short, the assumption of what Ricardo Caballero called a one deviation at a time model, consensus model, is fundamentally wrong. We have more than one equilibria we have to worry about if we are going to maintain stability. Moving to slide 10, we can therefore look at what valid models can do. Valid models are testable and not falsified when tested. Consensus model assumptions lead to conclusions which are demonstrably wrong. The consensus model's assumptions are therefore themselves wrong, and it is thus an invalid model. The results of this error are slow and ensured. 11. The assumptions from which this consensus model arrives at the wrong conclusions are that they misunderstand human behavior. The consensus model assumes that managers seek to maximize the present value of their company's net worth. 
This is known as profit maximization. Now, this assumption has been criticized by many economists other than me over many years, going back to Nicholas Caldor and Robin Maris, who were teaching when I was up at Cambridge in 1956. The stock market model follows these critics, making the fundamentally different assumption that both shareholders and corporate managers are primarily concerned with stock market value, not net worth. One of the reasons that the stock market model is so crucial is that it emphasizes that the consumption consumer consensus model makes a simple error on human understanding how human behavior. Slide 12 deals with the consistency of my model, the stock market model, with the data. This results from managers worrying about share prices not worth. Key evidence for the stock market model is the stability of the long-term real returns on equity. When I started to write the economics of the stock market, I was seeking to explain this stability, which I illustrate in the next slide. I was pleasantly surprised by my efforts, which resulted in a new model for the economy, unexpected as it was for me. Slide 13, may ask you to show. This is quite remarkable, I can tell you. Here we have 220, 220 years of data and very much reliable data. Few things are more reliable than share prices and dividends. We have these now over 220 years. And the returns that they give in real terms have been staggeringly consistent over this period of time. Now, consensus has no explanation of this at all. It therefore simply leaves out of its model what are the, perhaps the most important single fact about the cost of equity, which is that it is mean reverting which means that we can measure it. We can measure the cost of equity in time by looking at the average return, which is roughly 6.6, .6, and how far and away we are currently from that equilibrium. So actually we know that real returns in the stock market vary, roughly speaking, between two and 12%, with this average of six and a half. Slide 14 makes a final point which is that you can't actually expect people running economies to not take notice of the consensus model. They've got to have a model on which they can base their decisions. Policy must be based on a model. And they must therefore change that model because the one they're using at the moment leads inevitably to financial crisis. And I put forward that the stock market model is better than the consensus model for various reasons, one of which is that it's testable and when tested is robust. The other is that it provides us with the opportunity not to have a perennial financial crisis. Before I close, I should make, I think, one final sort of warning point 
I am suggesting something which is absolutely radical. And it is always dangerous to take one's ideas too seriously. But nonetheless, I do. To illustrate this point, I could refer to the opening of Stephen Hawking's Brief History of Time. He opens with the tale of a famous scientist who, after giving a public lecture on the universe, was contradicted by an old lady who said his views were rubbish, as the world was a flat plate supported on the back of a giant tortoise. The scientist therefore asked, what does the tortoise stand on? The response was very clear. You are a very clever young man, but it's tortoises, tortoises all the way down. And so I submit that we are talking here about something of revolutionary and of immense importance. And I take my ideas seriously. Thank you very much for listening to me. Andrew, thank you very much. That was an extremely uh, punctual and cogent argument, which I really, really enjoyed. We've got quite a few comments and questions, so folks, uh, please bring it in. We might back up just a teensy beat, a bit here, if you don't mind, Andrew. Um, Mark Zashin is curious, well, what's the time lag based upon your hypothesis? The time lag is unknown and unknowable. If it was known and knowable, the stock market would not diverge from fair value. If you could predict when it was going to fall, then the market would not be so stupid as to be unaware of that, and it wouldn't diverge away from fair value. We would live in a world of absolute wonderful stability of equity, of equity returns. Now, what we do know, however, is that vast amounts of money have been thrown at, by the financial services industry in trying to predict short-term movements of the stock market. And as far as I can see, they haven't even, they haven't not, not only succeeded in failing to predict it, they haven't even reduced the volatility of the market. <clears throat> so I think it's fair to say that what we're looking at here is that the stock market in the short term provides us in statistical terms with noise, it does not provide us with any signal. Now, interestingly enough, I haven't had time to explore the question of whether there are other disequilibria in the economy in addition to two. And I believe that there probably is, or probably are, and one of these I think is money supply. And I suspect that money supply has much the same characteristics in that variations of what used to be known in my day as Marshallian K, the ratio of GDP and money supply has a lot of short-term fluctuations, which provide noise rather than signal. It's only when you get very large movements away from uh, the ratio of GDP to money supply or significant variations of Q that you get into dangerous territory. Okay. 
We have a Martin White here is was wondering if you could just expand a little bit on what net worth really means, uh, in particular the impact of intangibles. You know, are intangibles not a component of net worth if we look at companies in aggregate using their share prices? There is a difference between companies in aggregate and the sum of the values that people put on companies. That is why stock market prices are very different from net worth. Net worth is the value placed on secondhand equipment by the surveys conducted by the ONS in Britain and the BEA in America. These are not scrap values. These are uh, what happened, what secondhand prices of equipment will go for uh, when we've got an operating economy and conditions of virtually full employment. So what you've got is two different values on the net worth of companies. One is what their assets are worth uh, in terms of basically what is sometimes referred to as replacement value, but of course nobody's right mind would, would replace old equipment when you've got much better stuff available now. So that's what Tobin used when he originally proposed this idea of Tobin's Q, but it's not a good definition. The definition of net worth is the, the value of the underlying assets of the company in terms of their current saleable value in terms of full employment, normal working conditions. Now that avoids Martin's question, it sets the scene for it. Now, there is no value for the corporate sector as a whole in intangible. Because of a mistake made in 2013 by the uh, National Data Service, the, the system of national accounts organized with the United Nations. Some element of intangibles is included, but it's very small. And the reason it's very small is intangibles are depreciated very much faster than tangibles. So basically the asset values you're talking about as published include a little bit for intangibles, but nothing significant. In fact, they should include nothing, including intangibles is a category error, in my view. The reason for that is quite simple. If you're a company and you make a development, uh, either a better product or a more efficient way of producing it, you have the drop on everybody else. You will make more money than they will. And the reason you'll make more money <clears throat> is because an increase in the efficiency of the economy will result in the value of profits going up and labor going up, but in equal proportions. But you as an individual company, you don't have to pay more than average for your labor. Other people, are in exactly the same boat, but you're the only person that picks up. So depreciation 
which rises with the growth of the economy. You make money, other people lose a tiny bit. And people forget the tiny bit that everybody else loses because they show like to show goodwill uh, in the accounts uh, to show that they had some value for their invention. But ill will is not a standard deduction from corporate balance sheets. And if you were going to get the thing balanced, you would have to have ill will and goodwill in balance. So the long answer, the short answer, is that there's insignificant inclusion of intangibles in the net worth calculation. The long answer is that there should be none. And the shortest, shortest answer is it doesn't matter which one you choose when you're doing the data. Hmm. Now we've we got a sort of double question. Paul Moxie is curious of your graph slide 13, which showed US equities annual real returns. Paul is curious, is your, is your, are, are you measuring this based on dividend, earnings, or increase in share price? And Martin White is also kind of curious, you know, if these are long-term returns, you know, is the 6%, 6.6% seen over time in the USA better than we can expect in other countries? So how are you measuring real returns? And uh, is 6.6% better than other countries? Uh, <clears throat> the answer is that 6.6 is the return we should all expect from everywhere. Uh, but it is subject to the avoidance of calamity. Frankly speaking, when people plan for their retirements, what they don't do is say, well, we may have a world war, uh, in which case I may not need to retire, in which case uh, I will allow for the chances of world war uh, knocking my retirement income by 20%. This is absurd. Uh, we cannot judge the results of future world wars from past world wars, and it was a mistake to try and fail to, to exclude what are known as Knightian uncertainty, uh, the subject of an excellent book uh, from John Kay and um, Mervyn King. There have been two forms of calamity which have, ex uh, which have hit market returns in a number of countries. Basically, these have been taking over the, the stock market by the government, such as St. Petersburg in 1917, or the calamitous losses to capital stock arising by major losses in world wars, the sort that Germany and Japan suffered in the 39-45 world wars. If you exclude those, as you should, because you can't allow for them, people's expectations of what they shall get is not going to be based on an assumption that they may or may not be blown up in the next world war. Their assumption, quite sensibly, is they want to retire if they are allowed to retire on a decent living. And how much should they assume equity returns will give them? The answer is you exclude those 
calamities. All world markets that we can have data from give you the same return. And I spend a considerable amount of time uh, in the economics of the stock market, giving you the data all that to show how justified it is. Mm. We've got a few questions here, Andrew. If, if, uh, I'm afraid I'm going to have to push you to be a little bit uh, sharper on some of them uh, because we've got quite a few. Uh, Michael Howell, wh where is the empirical evidence that quantitative easing raises bond prices? I don't know that you can easily do that. Uh, what I would say is that I am a great believer that if you have large buyers around, they will tend to push up the price. Okay. Uh, Hugh Purser, you know, have policymakers and indeed the consuming public not been in a way deceived by two decades plus of price suppression of manufacturing costs and prices? But yes, obviously, um, the, the, the belief that interest rates were here forever, which was pretty common, and I think was promulgated particularly by Larry Summers and secular uh, stagnation or something thesis, was an illusion. Uh, and we are now suffering from the results of that illusion because bad policies are, I think, you're probably about to have another financial crisis. I don't know, it's not a forecast, but certainly the conditions for one are high. Okay. Um, Chris Williams, when assessing uh, behavior in your stock market model, how do you view the now very popular stock buybacks as against new investments, which are being done in order to justify bonuses, or, or are stock buybacks irrelevant to your model? No, uh, they're not. And the, uh, they are important. Uh, they're important in many ways, but in order to keep it brief, I shall only talk on one of them. Uh, my previous book, which was called Productivity in the Bonus Culture, dealt extensively with this point. And what I sought to show was that the dramatic change in the way people are remunerated, management remunerated the 1990s, has made a major contribution to the stagnation of the economy ever since, because incentives work. And this was a perverse incentive, and it encouraged buyback in place of tangible investment. Okay. Um, Martin White is sort of curious, do, is there a fundamental problem if it's too easy to take companies over? How can managers be expected to take a long-term perspective? The fact that companies, managers don't want to be taken over seems to me to be perfectly human and not something you're going to change readily. Mm -hmm. the, the result of that is that companies don't wish to be under leveraged because since shares are usually priced on P multiple, if you under leverage, you're an open target. And we have to balance that with the risk that if you over leverage, you will suddenly have to go to shareholders and say, I'm awfully sorry I was over leveraged, I need some equity. And the stock market doesn't mind you boosting your equity by a low payout ratio, but it gets wildly antagonistic if you do so by suddenly going to the stock market for a lump of money. 
result of that is that there is considerable stability, and I point out this as well, the ratio of debt interest payments to profits before interest and tax is very stable, barring the impact of the world war, which deprived companies of access to the long bond market. Hmm. Okay, I'm going to pick up, um, <clears throat> going to share our, our, our final poll question whilst we continue with some of them. Do you think crises in the financial system are inevitable, folks? Choose yes or no. And while we're doing that, Andrew, just going to try and pick up another question here, if we might. Um, this is from Mark Zashin. Can the growth of shadow banks uh, cause a collision or any addition to your model? Uh, it's not directly relevant to the model, but I do think that uh, the rise of, uh, of the carry trade uh, has, is one of the instabilities we've seen. And uh, it's a good case to be said that a lot of the carry trade, which used to be carried in the corporate structure, has now moved into shadow banking in its various forms. And yes, I think there's probably a lot of instability there. Well, uh, there's definitely a lot of instability in our audience with 88% thinking crises in the financial system are inevitable, uh, which is a pretty compelling. But let's let's turn to two final questions yeah. if we can. I, can I ask though, you ask, would they agree that they would not be inevitable if, if financial if economic policy followed the stock market model rather than the consensus model? You might ask that you can as a follow-up. I okay, think that, back to you. Um, and we just we just hear, and I think actually the sympathy of the audience is, in fact, that the SMM uh, appears superior to the the consensus model. Um, Martin White has a kind of a long-ranging question on the avoidance of calamity. Might the cost of adapting or preventing climate change amount to a form of calamity for returns if you look forward from today? No, I don't think so. Uh, I'm trying to help raise money for the National Institute at the moment. And one of the, the some three specific questions, and one of them is to say we really do need a better model, growth model, than the current growth model, which is I in my previous book I showed that the current growth model simply does not stand up uh, to the data of is the consistency of equity returns. Mm. And I think we should do that, but my guess, my preliminary conclusion is it won't change the returns to equity. It will just make the growth slower for any given amount of investment. Yeah, Dan, Dan Feeney uh, is interested in, you know, how can private equity giants like, you know, BlackRock stay neutral and not interfere unduly with central bank economic policy? And Mark Zashin, in a related sense, is saying with the growth in retirement funds, are the Federal Reserve Banks and the Bank of England aware of the stock market and you know, using this to check if their signals keep the markets in some sort of check? We certainly see this with the liability-driven investment uh, kerfuffle over the last three weeks. So um, a very interesting area here. But uh, I think the final question really is, uh, there seems to be quite a bit of sympathy here in the audience uh, for your approach, Andrew, you know, does a qualified accountant like Liz Truss of the Treasury or Bank of England, do they know about your SMM? And have you had any reactions from authorities 
Uh, no. Um, just the, the majority of, just a small majority of people thought that Lib's past should heed consensus, orthodox economics. I hope after my discussion, a lot of those people will say no, Liz Trust should not heed orthodox economics. But equally well, the fact that Liz Trust doesn't know what she's doing doesn't mean that consensus economists know what they're doing either. Uh, I'm holding the view that both parties of this are absurdly wrong and we badly need more debate. And what my constant appeal when I make these talks is to try and get everybody to insist that there is a debate on this because consensus economists are very unwilling to debate. And I haven't yet managed to get anybody, eminent economists, to stand up and be prepared to debate the consensus against the stock market model. Which is better? Because if they agree that the stock market model is better, then a vast amount of new economics would suddenly surge. There's a way in which people would, people are wasting their time in vast amounts today by playing games, mathematical games, not because it isn't important that the maths is correct, it is, but the people who attack orthodox economics being over mathematical get it wrong. What is wrong about orthodox economics is not the maths, it's the assumptions on which it's based. <clears throat> if you do good maths and bad assumptions, you are wasting your time. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we're going to have to call it quits here. We've, we've reached our 45 minutes, but um, I have three quick rounds of thanks, if I may. Uh, firstly, uh, to our sponsors who are up here, thank you very much. Secondly, if I may thank our audience, you've not only been most tolerant in allowing us to have a, a slightly later start than we had anticipated, but thank you for that. Uh, but most importantly, you've been extremely vibrant today and really grasped Andrew's argument and worked with it. And let's see if we can get the message out there about uh, SMM. Uh, and finally, to you, Andrew, you, you've been extraordinarily stoic uh, through a, a little bit of problems here as we began, and I appreciate you keeping your sang froid and presenting so cogently, which was really, really superb. Um, I'm not going to try and torment you with uh, an applause piece of technology, so I have here something very primitive, our Korean karmic clapper, which will have to substitute for applause from the audience, which I can see. We will be sending you, of course, all of those comments, questions, and observations, and there are quite a few of them, uh, and leave it to you perhaps to get back to some of the people who've made uh, some more detailed, uh, more detailed uh, points. Uh, folks, as ever, uh, I won't read it out. It's there on the website. A lot coming up, but uh, in fact, in two days, a very interesting one on personal data. Is this the new charitable economic asset? I think it's going to be quite a fascinating session. Uh, but thanks to everyone. Thanks to you, Andrew, and looking forward to seeing you all on FS Club again. If I may pass on my own thanks, and I will try and reply to every single written question that anybody in the audience wishes to ask. I'm very good at that. And secondly, any help that you can give in insisting that consensus economists should stand up and debate, please push, 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 because it is actually rather vital for our future. Thank you very much.
Thank you.